Welcome to Arts Monday Symposis on ISED Radio 89.7 FM. This program takes place on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and I pay my respect to their elders, past, present and yet to come. My name is Ira and I will be with you for the next hour and a half talking to artists and writers whose works take inspiration from the natural world, contribute to the dialogue on climate change and look at the ways to raise environmental consciousness. In today's program we will be focusing on water and I will soon be on call to Georgina Reed, a writer and gardener who lives and works on the banks of the Hawkesbury River. Georgina will be with us on the show to read a number of her water-inspired poems, which she wrote, commissioned by the Red Room Poetry, for the project Riding Water, Rain River Reef. Hi, Ira. Hi, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you? What is it like to wake up by the Hawkesbury River this morning? Ah, oh, it's beautiful. I mean, it's it's generally always beautiful, but today is... It's particularly gorgeous, nice and sunny, gentle breeze. And um, what is high it? Tide. High tide. Yeah. Well, yeah, just going out now, but um, yes, mm. it's beautiful. Our program today is actually dedicated to water. And last year you wrote three beautiful poems that are dedicated to water, inspired by water. And they were commissioned by the Red Room Company for the Riding Water, Rain, River and Reef project. And one of these poems is Low Tide in the Mangroves, which I would love you to read for us. But maybe before we hear it, uh, could you describe the moment when this poem came to life? Mm. Well, I think I was down, so we live in a very small settlement upriver from Brooklyn. So we were down in Brooklyn for some reason getting our boat fixed. I don't know. We were, I was killing time, basically, wandering around uh, in the mangroves because I've got a soft spot for mangroves. And I was just looking down and uh, watching these little semaphore crabs waving their arms at each other, talking to each other. And um, I don't know, they just sort of captured my, my imagination. I was, I got curious about what they were doing and who they were and um, yeah. And then I just <laughs> wrote this poem, but you know, that was the beginning seed. That was the seed of the poem. And then of course, mm. Things grow from there. Yeah, so it wasn't written in one go. I assume you came back to it and refined it. Oh, yeah, always. I mean, <laughs> I would love to just sit down and, I mean, oftentimes sentences come out or, or ideas come out very strongly and clearly. And then I guess it's the, it's the words and the framing around that, that that can sometimes take a bit of time and a bit of refining and, and distilling. Mm. Do you mind if yeah. we hear it? Yeah, sure. Let me just get it. Um, so it's called Low Tide in the Mangroves. When the tide has slipped to the other side, when the waters succumbed to songs of distant sand, the semaphore crabs wave. Tiny orange limbs haphazardly salute 
unknowable messages bounce from claw to claw. Water like oil vibrates in silver puddles, islands of light, waiting, listening. Soon, news from the other side will arrive, caressing black mud, beckoning small messengers. The ocean, breathy, calls the shallows. Small homes with walls of silt and floors sunk deep are sprinkled between half-buried tyres, twisted mangroves and federations of oysters. Each minute castle guarded, connected by a chorus of limbs. This transient world of air and mud and messages unveiled daily by the pool of a moon. You mentioned to me how the river affects your work and your life. Um, you wake up by the river daily. In what ways is that influence most apparent? Uh, it's it's a very, very, very strong force. And I guess I'm someone, I, I didn't ever grow up near water or realize I was a water person. I grew up um, in central New South Wales on a farm. So I'm very used to space and, you know, being surrounded by um, big open spaces is kind of important to me. So moving here was kind of surprising, but I guess the most surprising thing was just how um, how strong the river is as a, as, a, as a force in my life. And it's, and when I say that, I mean, it's, you know, as a, in a practical sense, because, you know, we live, we don't have roads here, so we have boat access only. So there's, um, you know, there's a certain amount of engagement you have to have with the water, of course. Um, you know, it's, our, it's the way that we get to and from our house. It, you know, if it's crazy westerly winds blowing um, 40 kilometres an hour, we can't get out, we're kind of stuck here. So in terms of, um, yeah, in a, in a practical sense, and in a very physical sense, it's a very strong force and really dictates often <laughs> what, what we're doing or how we're moving in the world or how we're not. Mm. Um, but then, of course, it's there's something about working, um, you know, having a creative practice and working in relationship with the river that is harder to articulate, <laughs> of course, but... It's, yeah, it's, it's a really, I, I'm not, I, I don't know that I actually can, but it, it's, I find myself writing more and more about water and using it more and more as a metaphor in my writing. Mm. Um, it, it certainly shaped a lot of my words mm. over the last few years. Talking about water as a metaphor, I love reading on your website how the river and its tides are a reminder that inside too rises and falls. So I was thinking about the reminder that inspiration rises and falls. And you, these are your yeah. words, inside, however, is a slippery beast. It rises and falls like the tide of the Hawkesbury River flowing just outside my studio window. Mm. <laughs> that sounds quite nice. <laughs> You wrote I, I, I write so many words I forget what I've said but um, yes it's true it's true and it's I think that's the thing it, it 
it kind of um and thank you for reminding me of that because yeah it it does um there's a sense that you know there's nothing fixed about the river of course you know there's that that old phrase that everyone says you know you can't walk into the same river twice but i think of that really often because you know i think we spend a lot of time trying to fix things and control things and pin ideas down particularly as a writer you know that's kind of what i'm spend a lot of time doing trying to get to the bottom of something and then I look out the window and realize what am I doing of course like you know if nothing is ever pinned downable mm. <laughs> you know you think you grasp onto something and you do it for a second but then you know it, it will things will always change and evolve and grow and um disappear mm. or or not so yes it's it's mm. I was going to say it's a grounding force, but then of course it's not a, you know, it's, <laughs> it's also not. Yeah. It reminds you that things can't be grounded. Although in your poem, that's uh, another poem that we are about to hear, you do speak about river as a grounding force. The poem is called mm. There is Nothing Heavier Than a River. Uh, in it, you say that without its weight, we would be a spectacle, which is such a great yes. line. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, well, this poem kind of came as that sort of came as some sort of a a vision. I just realized that, yeah, I was thinking about water, um, obviously, and I, I realized that it's a thing. It's the heaviest thing in all of us. Like it, it kind of, it holds us to the, to the earth and the rivers that are, are the places that are the lowest places in a landscape. They can't kind of be anywhere else because the water, you know, it pulls, is pulled down to the lowest point. So, yeah, I kind of had this vision of, um, you know, being being dust and air and, and all of the things that float and the water being the, the force that actually holds everything together and holds us, holds us down. Mm. Do you mind reading this one to us, please? Sure, sure. There is nothing heavier than a river. It's the water that pins us down our flighty atoms, our fizzy ideas, our invisible words, held, grounded. Without its weight, we'd be a spectacle of glittering particles, gray, pink, brown, gold. Miscellaneous human crumbs whizzing through air, a mess of light, an unending soup of unformed life. Love like dust everywhere at once, sliding through fingers and splintering into minute mirrored shards in an untethered world. Is it here we go when water takes its leave, seeping unseen to the deepest place? There is nothing heavier than a river. There is nothing lighter than a life. is it for you to be grounded when you write oh uh it's important <laughs> how, do you, how it's... do you achieve it i guess that would be maybe a better question yeah. how, do, how do you get to this point of um that grounded insight um i i think place is very important to me so i i guess i've chosen to be 
in a place that allows me um, to be very connected to the, the landscape around me and the, the natural world. I think for me, I, I, I need that. I'm a gardener, so I spend quite a bit of time, you know, literally <laughs> worshipping the ground. Um, I also spend a lot of time walking up in, in the bushland around me. So um, for me, being grounded is being really um, kind of in some way kind of dug dug into the soil around me. It's been it's been very connected physically and, and again emotionally to to place and to, to beauty I guess as well. And I you know, I find that in trees and plants and birds and water and mm. all the things. <laughs> mm. And being a gardener and a writer, you have a background in journalism. You are also founding editor of The Plant Hunter, which is an online magazine that explores the endlessly curious, and these are your words, I love them, the endlessly curious connection between people and plants. When did you give birth to this magazine and how did this journey start for you? So I launched The Plant Hunter in 2013. So it's nearly eight years old now and I started it because I um yeah as you said I studied journalism and then for quite a while I was designing gardens um and I wanted to write more I was interested in writing more and I kind of realized that the only avenues for me was to sort of write for lifestyle magazines or you know that's kind of the obvious place for people who write about gardens and plants and that was certainly not the the place <laughs> um, I wanted to be. I thought there were um, a lot bigger and more important questions around gardening and relationship with with nature through plants that, that we weren't really thinking about or asking and so I started asking those questions and writing about them and um, that's kind of the plant hunter mm. and yeah still rolling <laughs> so the endlessly curious relationship is actually endlessly curious for you because it brings all yeah. these questions mm. yeah yeah mm. yeah i think it's um you know at a time you know i started i started it obviously that's eight years ago and obviously i was kind of thinking then although not certainly um things have changed quite quickly but i was thinking a lot then about how you know what i guess what we're doing and how how the ways we we see ourselves in relation to the natural world affect our actions mm. and the garden for me i mean yes it's my background and plants are my background but i also felt like it was a very um accessible touch point to encourage people to start thinking about you know how they move through the world and how they thought about themselves in relation to the world around them and yeah so that's that's been a really um important aspect of it for me is kind of you know and i use the word seduction a bit on the website like seducing people mm -hmm. people not really realizing <laughs> what's happening but but um seducing people into falling in love because i think it's a really important mm -hmm. framework for care 
Yes, and I wanted to ask you about care because uh, you describe gardening as being grounded in care and action. And you also mentioned that we don't value care enough in this society. And I was wondering if you have found that the value of care has increased since COVID. Um, uh, I haven't thought about that. Maybe. I think, I guess so. Um, I hope so. I'm I'm an optimist, so perhaps so. I think it's it's an interesting word. I think it's a very gendered word, um, and I think we're very good at applying it to others of our species. But I think we really it's often very challenging for people to to care for what they don't know and what's not immediately in front of them and what isn't human. <laughs> so, you know, it's like thinking about endangered species and there's tons of endangered um, species the world over, um, but the ones that invariably get attention are um, the ones that are animals that are sort of, mm. that we can relate to in some ways, whereas plants, um, you know, there's thousands of endangered plant species, but they're very, Hard, it's very hard for us, it seems to be very hard for us to care about them because we don't, you know, we don't see them or we can't relate to them or, um, you know, they're kind of, there's an invisibility, I think, often in relation specifically, and most of my writing is in relation specifically to the plants and the, the not necessarily animals. So that's, that's a framework in which I often think about care. Mm. So I, I, I don't know whether that's whether COVID has affected that necessarily, but I suppose we are valuing, people seem to be valuing green spaces and um, spending money on their gardens. It's interesting yes. you're mentioning the value of seeing and in invisibility. I also read somewhere that you wrote that there is a relationship between seeing and valuing and how you have discovered yes. this when your eyes open to seeing trees in a completely new way. It happened while you were driving from Manly, where you lived at the time, to ride, and you were suddenly seeing them in a way that you have never seen them before. Could you recall this moment for us? What happened? What changed? Well, <laughs> it wasn't that dramatic, but um, <laughs> it was, I was just driving. I, was, I studied horticulture at Ride Tape, so I was just driving um, along this road that I was have been driving along twice a week for a year or so. And, yeah, suddenly I just started, I must have been learning tree species as one of the subjects. And so I was learning, you know, 20 new plants a week or whatever it was. And all of a sudden I kind of looked up and saw these trees and I could name them. I knew that that was a jacaranda or a liquid amber or whatever it was. I can't remember now. But I just remember. And then, of course, started seeing them everywhere. And I just realized I had this kind of like, my God, what have I been doing this whole time? I haven't been seeing <laughs> I haven't been seeing these things and you know it's like anything once your eyes are open to something a particular thing you you start seeing it everywhere and I I guess that always comes back to me because I just I realize um, it made me realize how important it is to to pay attention and what happens when we pay attention you start seeing all of this amazing stuff mm. that you would otherwise just be completely blind to and that's something that I think about a lot and I, I sort of, it's part of my practice is just looking, just looking. Mm. It's very powerful. 
sounds so simple, but it's a very, very powerful act. Mm. Yeah, in stillness and writing poems mm. as you do. There is a third poem that I would love you to read for us. It's called Avesenia Marina, and it is mentioning trees. So could you tell us a bit better this poem came as the last one in the series, or were you writing them in a different order than we are hearing them this morning? Um. I can't remember. I think I actually wrote them in the order that you, that I've read them, mm. I think. Yeah, coincidentally, and, this one was the last one. Mm. Um, and for those who might not know what Avicinia is, could you please let us know what it means? Yes. Yes, so Avicinia is, uh, Marina is the botanical name for the mangrove species that live just down the river from me. And... Um, as I think I said at the start, I'm a bit obsessed with mangroves. I really love mangroves. Mm. <laughs> so I wanted to write a poem about them. And um, this one finally came up. And what they do is, maybe I should explain, they have these, it, I do kind of talk about it in the poem, but they've got this adaptation where they have these um, aerial roots. So they stick up through the mud, the things called pneumatophores. So they allow the the tree because all trees need to breathe so they need oxygen in the soil there's, there's oxygen moving through the soil and the roots need that oxygen otherwise they will drown essentially mm. um and so these pneumatophores allow the the mangroves to live in the high tide and the low tide and the mud and still be able to breathe mm. which i think is a beautiful thing mm. let's have a listen to this one Soft chimneys shoot skyward through mud, breathing in, never out. New metaphors, they're called by some. The tiny towers inhaling air into the chambers of a world that is a tree, that is a city. A metropolis designated once for a Persian physician, philosopher, poet. A man who lived a thousand years whose name says home and breath and river and ocean and loss. Did he know, too? How to breathe mud. You spoke about gardening as potentially teaching us of how to be a better human. What are some of the key lessons on how to be a good human and how to relate better to other non-human species that gardening has taught you personally? Um, well, it's taught me a lot of things. The most important thing, I think, is gardening for me, and of course it depends how you how you practice it, it's about being in relationships. So, you know, there's a lot, historically, um, there's a lot of ways in which gardening has been kind of a way of controlling, um, putting up borders and fences and hedges and, you know, managing the landscape. But... I think a much more beneficial and interesting framework as well is, is to think about the garden as relationships. So what I mean by that is making space for others and human lives in the garden and being with them and allowing, you know, agency, which we don't often mm. think about when we think about plants having agency. Mm. So um, when we bought the property, it was covered in lantana and all sorts of weeds and because we live next to a piece of bushland, you know, it's important, obviously, to clear those so they're not 
getting into this nature reserve behind us. So I spent a lot of time clearing and instead of just, you know, going and buying a whole bunch of new plants and sticking them in, which I did buy some, of course, but I also made space for the seed bank. So I made space to see what would actually come up once there was sun and air and space for little lives. And so I let things pop up and mm. if they're endemic, um, they're allowed to stay. So of course, there's, you know, there's always gardening is inherently irrational as well because, you know, I do pull out certain things and leave others and I always question why I'm, I'm doing that. Um, and sometimes I don't pull everything out, but um, it's really interesting to see to see what comes up and where they where different species decide to pop up and and how they choose to be there. So mm. I I think um, that's a really that's quite fun for me. I really enjoy gardening in that way because it feels yeah it's a lot it's more like a collaboration really. I'm just sort of I'm helping things along mm. and I'm also allowing room for others to to express things. Mm. Yeah, there is a humility in that relationship. You also speak about that, that there is a mm. humility required in relationship with the plants, with the garden. And also yeah. in it, in, in what you're saying, I'm uh, hearing that uh, you're celebrating or giving voice to the chaos, that beauty for you is not necessarily an ordered and designed thing. And yet mm -hmm. you do see beauty and creation and celebration of beauty as one of your guiding principles. Yeah. What, what, is, yeah. what is beauty for you? It's not just being pretty, I assume. No, 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 I think... Um, I thought about this quite a lot um, because, you know, for a long time, it's been, it's a force that has always been very strong in me is to, you know, to make a place beautiful or to, to pursue a beautiful idea or to, to create something beautiful. And for a while I thought, my God, this is very shallow. Like, why, why do I need to do this? It seems kind of a bit shallow or a bit empty. And then I think it's you know I've I've come to realize that it's certainly not and beauty is is about meaning for me it's about something that is meaningful and you know that can be something incredibly dark or it can be something incredibly you know light but it's it's never about just a simple kind of aesthetic it's mm. beyond aesthetics I suppose for me it's mm. not just just about a simple you know composition it's about something that gets closer to to a sense of truth whatever whatever mm. that is something that comes from heart and speaks through it yeah 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 so. Georgina thank you so much for being with us this morning and I wish you a beautiful day by the Hawkesbury River <laughs> I, I wish I was there um, it sounds uh, yeah, I'm imagining it being just stunning, waking up each morning by the river and going to sleep by the river as well. What is it like in the evenings? Ah, it's beautiful. Mm. It's beautiful all the time. Mm. I feel very, 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 very lucky always, every single day. I mm. can't believe it. Yeah, I'm, I'm aware of what a special place it is. And mm. I'd like to make sure I care for it.
That was Georgina Reed. She's a writer and gardener based at the banks of the Hawkesbury River. She's also founder of The Plant Hunter, which you can access through theplanthunter.com. You're on ESA Radio 89.7 FM. This is Arts Monday Symposis, a fortnightly show on which we speak about art and environmentalism.